0: Um, you don't know much about me, and Cass just said she's looking forward to me speaking tonight because she doesn't know much about me either. So <laughs> tonight will be my lead, and then you'll hear her rebuttal tomorrow morning uh, about nine thirty. So my name's Dan, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. It's good to be sober today. I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. The, uh, smooth sailing, but uh, you know, as hard as I tried to not work this program, it, of working these steps are going back where I came from. Uh, Fortunately for me, I've got a higher power who keeps getting me. Um, it's wonderful to be here. It's been a delight. No expectations whatsoever, but an absolute delight. Um, you folks have welcomed Kathy and I into, into, your, into your meals and, and into your conversations this weekend, and, and it's, it's really a joy. Uh, it reminded me of one of you for, for sharing with us on uh, uh, after the meeting. He brought up a couple of things that I had forgotten. I spent some time in Cincinnati in school, back at the same time Don, in Cincinnati drinking at the uh, uh, Victoria Station. My roommate was the bartender for Don at <laughs> Victoria Station. And uh, according to his records, uh, my roommates, I think Don was overserved on a number of occasions there at Victoria Station. And, Marianne, I love the story this morning about, the, uh, about the, the can of the Hershey's chocolate. The only thing that was left out is I figured you were going to come back with the, with the can of Ready Whip, you know, Can a couple of pulls <laughs> off of that along with it. That was my first thought. I mean, if I had that situation, I'd have wanted a couple of pulls on the, uh, on the Ready Whip to go with it. So so some are second to others. That's why I'm here. It's, uh, it's not a long story, but... Uh, I'll uh, try and be as as brief. Um, I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana. uh, Or being married. Of being uh, born into an Irish family. Uh, My father had six brothers and a sister. What they did when they socialized was drank. That's what we did. I mean, we learn our behaviors from the folks that we work with. Be whatever behaviors they are, that's how I learned. Um, Don mentioned last night he remembers having a hot toddy. I have a visual memory of um, being not able to be able to get up to the top of that table over there and getting sips from my mother and father from beer at a very young age I can doing that and anytime I wanted one I and um, I had a chance I guess to get into this program I had some early things that would t- I kind of was a little compulsive um, I don't know if you all remember the Howard Johnson's uh, before we had graders or before we had haagen or any of those other ice creams. that was the only place you went for ice cream they also served uh, fried clams and whenever I found something that I really liked, I would consume it. To this day, I can't eat a fried clam anymore because of how many fried clams I ate at Howard. Jones. Same way with prunes. I got ate one prune. Or maybe I ought to just leave it at that. Uh, uh, but uh, needless to say, I don't do a lot of prunes anymore either. Uh, my mother used to tell me a story about the fact that uh, I kind of liked ice cream because she woke up in the middle of the night one night and found me in front of the refrigerator, and at that time you, you, the, the lard wasn't up in in the uh, in the in the cabinet because you had to keep it in the refrigerator and it wasn't yellow; it was white. And I was in there and I was sitting in front of the refrigerator with a spoon and a, and a pound of lard and I was just ready to dig in there for my first scoop of vanilla ice cream. So. Um, the point is, is that I learned very early in life that I could alter my mood by consuming something. And whatever I could get my hands on that would matter, I would take. and I would. So I think I had a pretty good shot of making it here to this program <laughs> really early on. I had a normal childhood. I'd like to stand up here and say that, uh, you know, my father threw me against the wall or my mother, you know, did this or did that. They did the best they could do. I was blessed with the fact that I, I'm always wanted to, I always wanted to have somebody to blame. My father was a, uh, uh, a gym rat. He, uh, he didn't make it. But, um, now, I was in some therapy a few years ago where I couldn't say that, but now I'm okay. I can get to there. But uh, uh, I didn't find alcohol until high school. Uh, but when I found it, man, I had an answer talks about on, the, on these steps up here, you got to get all the way to step 12 to have a spiritual experience. My first drink was a spiritual experience because for the first time in my life, I felt whole. I felt like I belonged. I felt like I could actually be with other people. Um, I spent my whole life with my stomach uh, and couldn't figure out why. I just figured, well, I'd look at other kids and they seemed to the beings. I couldn't do that. But boy, when I found alcohol, I found the answer. And I love in the big book, uh, early on in the first couple of three chapters, it talks about at some point in our, in our drinking career, we could have quit. Why? <laughs> Why? Why would I quit? I just found the answer. And uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't the binge drinker. Um, I didn't belong here. I was the one that used to drive everybody home. I was the one when I got in college, when I was taken to another town to, to visit friends, they would always fix me up with the girl who was the big drinker in town to see whether I could outdrink drink or not. I didn't belong here because I didn't pass out sick. I always made it home. I was driving other people home. And so it didn't make sense to me. I had just found an answer and what I wanted to do was, is I wanted to drink just enough to get rid of the shakes and to reach that little level right there, that little plateau and just stay there all night. And so I would nurse drinks all night. I always had this little trigger in the back of my head that said, you've enough and it's time to go home I never killed anybody uh, uh, because I couldn't stop whenever I would start a day with one drink I had to have at least three and then we start the day and I just I could not just have one drink ever. Well, I couldn't have one at anything the prunes proved that uh, the um, um, I grew up in sport, as Don spoke about last night, was sports. My outlet was sports. Uh, I, I enjoyed baseball, basketball. How could you be from Indiana and not like basketball? I mean, it's, uh, it was your birthright. Um, you know, I grew up uh, with two, I had two favorite teams, uh, Indiana University and whoever was playing Kentucky. That was it. I mean, we, uh, that was it. Any, any time, well, I mean, it was broke our heart when Kyle Macy went to Kentucky. I mean, any time a kid from Indiana left and went to play basketball at the University of Kentucky, we hated it. So it was, uh, so my apologies to any Kentucky fans here, but uh, that's my experience. So, so I get to, uh, I didn't do much in high school. Uh, I hated school. Absolutely hated it. Uh, the problem was I got bored. Um, teacher would put a, a diagram up on the board and I'd be able to grasp it easily and then I'd get bored and I'd just start screwing around in class and get thrown out or get a detention or whatever and uh, when I was a junior in high school um, about all I did was drink. I pulled four D's and an F my first in my junior year and then parlayed that with a, with a comparable record in the second semester and, I, um, and the only thing that scared me into studying was the fact that all of my classmates were gonna go to college the next year and for once in my life, I started studying one year. And I don't know why Xavier University let me in because all they had was one year of record of me actually doing anything, uh, but they let me in. Uh, what was really nice about going to Xavier University was is that at that time, you could dr- uh, Couldn't wait to get there. And uh, Xavier was a delight. It was a treat. It was all. And we drank. That was what. I treated uh, College pretty much the way I tried. You know, it was just let's see the least you can do, and, and uh, that carried over into a a little longer, a little later than that. But uh, um, one thing I knew was is that I really liked drinking. I really liked socializing. And the one thing that that drinking always did for me, I felt good. I felt right. Uh, I danced better. Um, but what it was really about was the girl. Man, if I had the alcohol in me, I could talk to the girls. And that's not quite, quite true. What it was really about was sex. But, uh, <laughs> but considering I was drinking a lot, that really didn't matter. But in the back of your <laughs> mind, the real truth was is the alcohol was about sex. And uh, in college, I, I had a, a normal career in college, uh, socialized. But I liked to drink so much that I figured, you know, this is pretty expensive, and I didn't have a lot of money. So uh, the natural progression was I became a bartender. You get free drinks when you bartend. You get a stay after hours. And if you work in an area where there are a lot of bars, the other bars will comp you for drinks when you come in on your off nights. It was perfect. Absolutely perfect. Uh, I did that for about four years. Uh, it was great. Um, I had a case one time where uh, um, when you're bartending, you don't get off at 2 or 3 in the morning. To, uh, to Xavier, and I had a labor economics class. This was in the summertime because a lot of times I would take courses during the year and I wouldn't pass. So I'd have to make them up. In the so uh, I had a labor economics final in the middle of July, and uh, I didn't get home till like four o'clock in the morning. I didn't study. and I went into class and I just bombed it. And I told the professor, uh, Dr. Conley uh, Donley, excuse me, I said, you know, I was I was bartending last night and get home four o'clock in the morning. I'd really appreciate an opportunity. You know, it was a case where you didn't have to pay for your classes. He happened to come up to the bar Friday night. This was Thursday. I told him Friday morning, I'll show you. He comes up Friday night with his wife and another couple. And we had a big patio out in the back and those windows. And we got an order for a grasshopper from, uh, from the patio. And um, we sent out a Brandy Alexander. So it was brown. It wasn't green. And so it showed up on their table, which I didn't know at the time. And the waitress brought it back and said this was supposed to be a, a, a grasshopper. So I gave it to my buddy around the other side of the bar, and he poured green cream of the mint into that brandy Alexander till it turned green, and we sent it back out. And the, uh, and the drink was for Dr. Donnelly's wife. Uh, and uh, he stopped by the window, the service window, to say hello to me when he went out, and he said, I want you to know that was the best drink my wife has ever had in her life. <laughs> And he must have got lucky that night because he gave me a C and never made me take the final exam over again. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, again, but the point was is that I didn't have any consequences. I mean, I didn't study, I didn't take the test, and yet I somehow lucked out through the whole thing. And you talk about luck. I was about 22 years old, 21, 22 years old at that time. And I was walking around Mount Adams, which is where I was bartending at that time, and uh, I, found a, I found a coin on at 22 years old. On one side of the coin, it said one day at a time, and on the other side of the coin, it had the Serenity Prayer. Now, I've got to tell you, I had no concept of what Alcoholics Anonymous was, but I said, you know, that's kind of a neat little coin. There's a couple of cute little sayings there. I put that coin in my pocket, and I carried that coin for six years before I lost it, and I had no clue what this coin was until I walked into AA when I was. Four. So. Somebody was ringing the bell, but I, I still carry uh, the newcomer's token. That's the only one I ever... As you can tell, I'm pretty happy. To <laughs> <do>. <laughs> <laughs> so I was telling Kathy last night on the way over here that uh, I was a senior in college, and I hadn't done And I was in a class, and I can't remember what class it was. But in the middle of class, I suddenly realized that it was going to be real. Life was going to be real. And I just started... Shaking. And I couldn't believe it. And as it happened, for some reason, I took a couple of interviews with some accounting firms, and I ended up getting the second highest offer of our entire senior class. I said, What's wrong with these guys? <laughs> you know, offering me this kind of money. I knew I was a jag off, I knew I was a drunk, prepared, but they hired me. They made the mistake of sending me to Chicago on Rush Street uh, in 1969 right in the middle of the baseball pennant race when the, when the Cubs lost to the New York Mets. And so needless to say, I'm supposed to be up in Chicago for six weeks <coughs> learning about the accounting profession, and I'm right in the middle of Rush Street, and you can bet what I was studying for six weeks, um, I pretty much knew where every bar was on Rush Street uh, at that time. And, uh, and when I got back to uh, um, Cincinnati, I'm sorry, I was living in Columbus. Arthur Anderson, my employer, started saying things to me, whatever you decide to do, you're I mean, they were very gracious about the the fact that they had just fired my ass and said, get out of here. We don't want to see you anymore. And so, I mean, uh, uh, I was gone. So I went back to to Cincinnati, and, and I went back to bartending. Went to graduate school. To go to school, I just—or actually, I didn't want to work. It's the problem. I just wanted to go to school. I want to drink, go to school, and have a good time. I didn't. Um, I went to work for a bank down there uh, in the trust department. Uh, I started talking to people about managing their money. After what you've heard of this story so far, would you be sitting down with me talking about what you're <laughs> going to do with your money the rest of your life? So that lasted about a year, and uh, they thought I'd probably uh, make a bigger success somewhere else. Um, so I went back home to Indianapolis. And I always wanted to be in the brokerage business, and, uh, um, but all I really did was I'd go to work every day until that little bell went on in my head and said, go home, you've had enough to drink. And uh, I wasn't making much money. Uh, to that point in time, still the one who's driving everybody else home, doesn't have any repercussions from their drinking. And along about 1978, I'd, I came home one night and I don't remember anything. Uh, I came home. I, I went to the. I went to the bathroom, and the next morning I woke up stuck to the carpet. I had fallen off, and went straight down face first on the carpet, and it and it cut my face. Um, and I had this deep shag carpet, and I bled into the carpet, and I was stuck. I couldn't get off the carpet in the morning. So for the first time in my life, I'd actually had a consequence to my drinking. There was actually something that said, "Hey." Well, you know, there's something over here you might want to take a look at. And, uh, and I got scared. I really got scared. And I quit drinking for four days. And uh, I went back out again. And the first night I went back out again, it happened again. I, f- I passed out and fell down and, and face first on the floor and stuck there. Um, which now you have to understand, I'm in the brokerage business, and I'm talking to clients every day. I'm meeting them face-to-face, and I'm telling them that I, you're the, I'm the guy you need to talk to about your financial future, and I got scabs on my face from, <laughs> that are healing from me being stuck to the carpet. So they thought maybe I wouldn't have a future in that business, and so I thought the problem was is that they had really bad alcohol in Indianapolis. And so this was early 1978, and I uh, I said, I gotta find some place that better, uh, better alcohol. I gotta get out of here. Uh, maybe it'll stop me from passing out and being stuck to the floor. So I went to someplace sane. I moved to California. So I moved to Los Angeles, California. Um, and the way I got there was is the fact that when I went, I was working for Dean and The only reason I chose Dean Witter is because at that time you had to spend four months in either New York or San Francisco to learn how to be a stockbroker. This was February. Where are you going to go in February? New York or San Francisco? Dean Witter was the only firm that had a training school in San Francisco, so I knew Dean Witter was the firm. And so I spent four months in San Francisco uh, and loved loved California. Just absolutely loved it. Didn't learn much, but uh, California. So a friend of mine who was uh, had gone through training with invited me to come out and go to work. And the drinking continued. Nothing changed. And along about, th- I had uh, I had another little problem uh, that uh, it had been around for a few years, which was another reason why I didn't have a lot. Of- and um, I was in California about two weeks and I, I hooked up with a bus trip to go down to Del Mar, which is in San Diego. It's a racetrack in San Diego. And I was drinking all day. And I went to the racetrack, and I lost all the money I had with me. And I rode the bus back. When I got back to my apartment in California, in Los Angeles, uh, and instead of calling Alcoholics Anonymous, I called Gamblers Anonymous. It was the last thing I had done that day, so it must be a gambling problem. It can't be the drinking problem. It can't be the drinking problem because, again, alcohol is the answer to all my problems. So it has to be something other than the alcohol. And so a guy came over and picked me up, and took, and I went in there, and I'm half drunk anyway. I don't know what's going on. uh, On the way back, the guy—the only thing I remember the night was the guy said on the way back. He said, and that went right over my head. That's 1978. I still didn't get in this program until I stayed in California. I, uh, I, for once in my life, I actually worked a job and stayed. Was able to stay there almost five years before. And uh, I told you a little earlier, I hated school. And what I hated about school was the professor who would stand behind the podium like this, open their textbook, and just read. That just drove me crazy. So um, when I was at Xavier, the, the, the professor who was the head of the business school called me into his office one day. and he said, you know, he says, I want you to go down to this business college. And he says, you never learn anything till you have to actually. And he saw something that I had no clue about. Uh, But somebody in California said, you know, you're terrific. I was very good at it. And and so uh, I taught. I used to travel around the state of California. People want to be brokers or start their own firms. And uh, along about this time, we're in about the middle of 19, Los Angeles. I get a call from a friend of mine in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he said, you know, um, your friend Kathy Fogarty in Cincinnati, her husband died. And... uh, Kathy and I had dated for uh, some time in college, back in the late, and, and we had always were concerned with each other about how. The so this was the summer of, uh, uh, of two thousand or 1985, Kathy will tell you. But uh, I went and saw Kathy that August um, in Cincinnati, and then I went back to Los Angeles, and she was going to Alana, Cincinnati, and that her husband had tried AA for a little bit. So I went back out to Los Angeles, and I said, well, be a good friend. I'll go to a couple of Al-Anons, <laughs> you know, just to see what's going on. Now, again, I'm still drinking, and I go to a couple of Al-Anon meetings. I just don't go to a couple of Al-Anon meetings. I only wanted to go to the ones in Bel Air and Beverly <laughs> Hills so that I could see who was actually in the program out there from the entertainment industry. So, uh, but it was under the guise of the fact that I was really trying to empathize with my, my friend Kathy in Cincinnati, and... Uh, Then I went to a couple of AA meetings. Uh, Smoke started about here and went to the ceiling. I said, "Man, this is nothing. Nothing I'm interested in." And uh, not knowing at all that I was going to end up in AA later. So um, again, somebody was knocking on the door. I was being forces of the universe were giving me the program again, just like this coin when I was 22 years old. But I wasn't listening. I uh, I ran out of money at the end of. I cared about Kathy, and being three thousand miles away, uh, I didn't think that that would. Now, um, when I came back to Indianapolis, I was living with my parents. I had, um, I took a job. I was working part time for some uh, some temp agencies, and then I and I stayed there about five years. Uh, but I got home. I got back to Indianapolis in in October, and I knew I had a drinking problem. But I, I, I you know, I. I hear a lot of leads where people talk about, you know, they had the drunk to end all drugs, and that's when they got in. I went to a bar to watch the Oklahoma-Missouri basketball game one time. with two, And I always thought I had to. And this story was no more complicated, that we walked into the bar, everybody ordered. I mean, I didn't say it to them, I just said it to me. I'm drinking all the time because I think they're drinking, but yet I walk in here and they're ordering. And that's that was my moment of, uh, uh, this, again, probably a spiritual experience. <laughs> I, at the time, I thought I was absolutely nuts, and uh, so I went out to, uh, I, I had been going out to Butler University, so, you know, it's like going to barber school. People are all out there practicing, become psychologists and psychiatrists. I didn't have a lot of money, so I just went out there and said, could you take me on as, a, you know, kind of a class project or whatever, and so I'm out there seeing this uh, this doctor, and they have me, they have me take all those, those tests and everything else, and he was trying to do everything, and he t- I, t- I took all those tests, and for once in my life, I took them honestly. Uh, and he came back, and he said, you know, you appear to be normal in every other case, but he says you appear to have And I can remember all those magazine articles where they said, test yourself, see whether you had a problem. The problem was is they always gave you the, number- the answers in the back, and I would always go on the back and see, okay, if I had to get four wrong to be an alcoholic, guess who only came up with three after they got finished taking a test? So... Um, for once in my life, I took the test honestly. And in February, uh, February 13th of, uh, of 1990, I walked in the rooms of alcohol. It was another smoke-filled room. It was a men's meeting, and it was like um, um, <laughs> Mary Ann was talking about earlier, by going into an Elnon meeting and, and you know bitching about the fact you've got a new Mercedes. Uh, It was a men's meeting. It was a pretty tough meeting, a pretty rough bunch of guys, and there was some guy in there. He was screaming and hollering about the fact that his new Corvette, the brakes weren't working right. And, I mean, these guys were all over him. And I said, would be. And so I sat back in the corner so I could keep an eye on everybody. Uh, I didn't want anybody behind me at the meeting. But as I said earlier, it was the first time in my life I ever felt like I was at home. I mean, I had a family. I had a good family home. Because these people knew me. And after the meeting was over, they started coming up to me. You know, everybody saw uh, a few folks have already said, What? <laughs> you know, give me something difficult. You know, give me a problem to figure out or something else. All they said was, Why don't you not drink between now and tomorrow and come to a meeting? That's all I said. And then people started really being nice to me They come over, shake my hand, introduce themselves. You know, that was really pretty annoying um, in the sense that. I couldn't stand myself, and here are a bunch of people who don't know me from deep center field who are coming over and being nice to me. It took me a long time uh, because even though I knew I had a drinking problem, even though I no longer had an answer to my life's problems, I came in these rooms with a 10-foot pole under my arm and basically said, somebody take this pain away and just leave me the hell alone. That's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. I wanted to to have somebody take the pain away. That had been the story of and uh, and I'd like to say that I lived happily ever after. After walking in the first night, uh, I treated AA the same way I treated everything else in my life. I went to meetings every day. I thought the 90, day, 90 meetings in 90 days was kind of like a fraternity hazing. You know, I figured after you got finished with that, you'd have to go throw an egg over the clubhouse and catch it on the other side. So I went to meetings for about a month and started to really feel good. But again, I said, let's see how little I can do and still, so, and I got down to to one. And I was crazier sober than I ever was drunk. And uh, talk about people looking out for you. I was down to one meeting a week. I was out selling, and I wanted to go have lunch. And I didn't want to go over have lunch at Frisch's or Wendy's. I wanted to go to my old bar. And they had a new meeting at the club in Indianapolis, and it was one of those, which one do I go to? Because I didn't want a sandwich. I wanted a drink. I was down to one meeting a week. I hadn't worked the steps. So I didn't have a sponsor. Um, I was still of that mindset that said, if you don't figure out how to do this alone, you if you've got to ask for help, you know, you, you can't share the credit with anybody if you can't do it yourself. You so I drove back to, to the clubhouse, and I drove around that block, and I sat in the new meeting. I got there about 20 minutes late, and I'm sitting here, and there's a young lady sitting right next to me. And in Indianapolis, they, they don't, it's not uh, uh, random speaking at meetings. You just go in a, a row from one person to the next. And I just explained what I explained to you about the fact that, that I had just circled the block four times before coming in here. This young lady comes next on the speaking, and she said she had had the same experience a week before. She chose to have a drink instead of coming to the meeting. And the reason it took her this long to get back was she just got out of jail. You know, how much do I have to be told, you know? so somebody's looking out for me again and uh... i'd like to tell you i lived happily ever after after that but uh, these steps over here being a gambler the real problem that you folks had was you showed me all twelve at the same time i mean if you'd have fed them to me like uh... A, like, a, like a stud poker game and given them to me one at a time i'd have probably been fine but you showed me all twelve and uh, I was okay with the first three because you really didn't have to do any work. You just had to keep showing up and saying, yeah, oh, yeah, I took the first step. and I saw. Then I saw a five and I saw a nine. And I said, there's no way I'm doing those. Because uh, somewhere along the line, I decided that nobody was going to know who I was. Because if I let somebody know who I was, you wouldn't like me and you alone. And somehow I reasoned that if I was left alone, I'd die. Only problem was I was already alone. I had been alone. I had been isolated. I didn't live in apartment buildings. I lived in carriage houses and gate houses. Nobody around. I was the only one on the property other than the property owner. I had isolated myself to the So I actually just, this is really kind of a public service message for pain and suffering. Uh, <laughs> the only way I'm going to work these steps is if I'm in enough pain that it's. And the only way I'm going to work these steps is if I have have a sponsor uh, I'd still be working on the fourth step if my sponsor hadn't told me, you'll be in my office at 5 o'clock on November 12th to give me your fifth step because I'd have worked that sucker, I'd have worked that fourth step forever. I'd have had every Hazelden book in front of me, and, and I'd have, I just never would have got there. And he knew, that I was, he knew that I would not sit down long enough to do that thing out of, the, out of the big book. He just said, give me three lists. He says, give me your anger list, give me your fear list, and give me your sex inventory and uh, uh it was uh it was a unique experience to do that um, i thought i was going to really knock his socks off um, i think about 20 minutes in he was asleep and uh and really the inventory uh, the the fifth step wasn't over with until i got finished and he says the, the great line is that all No, you know you always hold that one thing back that you don't want to tell anybody about so you're going to take to your grave and uh it's always the most fun about the sponsee is letting them unroll all that stuff, go through all the pages. Says, is there anything else? I actually had a sponsee come back to me two months and tell me, "Hey, by the way, there was one other thing." <laughs> so, uh, uh, but after I got through five, um, I really had no interest in doing six, seven, and eight because I was going to have to do nine. Um, because I had, sir, I had told people all the time I was sorry and I thought that's what step nine uh, and then when I found out it was the fact you not only have to say you're sorry you have to go to person and say what can I do to make up for what it is that I've done in harm to you and That, but again pain and suffering steps in and, and really the uh, what I had to learn in the ninth step was the fact that it's not about the other person the best amends that I ever was associated with was where the person turned around and walked away thing, and that's when I learned that the ninth step was just about me cleaning up my side and that was a, it was a very nice awakening for me it, um, and what's interesting about this, this whole this, the, the whole program is the fact that it just, uh, it's the fact that life keeps presenting uh, as I said I got sober in Indianapolis and uh, in nineteen uh, 98 Kathy and I started uh, Started seeing each other again. Weird, weird thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> Apologize. The uh, um, we would run into each other at places that you just can't believe. We were. Uh, um, I had left California, <laughs> come back to Indianapolis, and um, one of the things I did in California was I, repre- I represented customers who had been uh, beaten up by a stockbroker and lost money, and I represented them in har- arbitration hearings. And so I still had a client in California. In 1990, I'm back in California seeing one of my clients, and I'm coming out of the Cheesecake Factory in Woodland Hills, California, and I had this strange feeling as I'm walking this way. Car goes by this way, and about 30 seconds later I hear, Danny, it's Kathy. She was in Los Angeles, California, having dinner with her, with her uh, hostess on the way over to Catalina Island to speak. And to run to her three thousand miles away from home you know out of the blue sky was just crazy the next time I saw Kathy she showed up she was speaking in Indianapolis the day my father died so I mean it's it's just was uh, um, it's just been a really wonderful and um... relationship along the way um... and as uh... So Kath doesn't have to tell on me tomorrow. Even though we would run into each other, it still took me about seven years to call her to go down and say hello. So uh, I work, I'm a little slow worker. So, uh, but uh, we started seeing each other in, in, uh, in uh, 1998. And then I moved to Cincinnati in, in 1990. We were married last May. And wonderful program. I mean, I, it's, just, it's just amazing to me, uh, all the circles that get closed, all the wounds that get healed and all the joy that uh, this program brings to us and, and if i can uh... just close this uh... with with just a brief suggestion um, uh... when we were at uh... when we were married kathy's uh... uh... brother john got up and gave a bit of an invocation after at the end of the service and he was trying to come up with something that would describe our relationship and he said he said uh, um, the only people I know, or the only, referring to me, says the only guy I know who started a relationship in the year that Medicare was passed and sealed the deal two years before he was eligible for benefits. <laughs> so, wh- what I'm suggesting to you is, uh, if you haven't already decided, please come tomorrow morning. You will find out why Kathy was worth the wait. Thank you. <laughs>